Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, Steve, welcome back. We are finishing up. This is, we are still recording from the previous episode you may have heard. We are going to go ahead and do the second half of March 1964. Okay, so um, we are now going to move on to Tales of Suspense, right? And I guess this is your turn. Let's go ahead. Uh, We are very much going to set our five-minute timer. We have more of the cutesy credits in this one. Yes, we do. Uh, Written by Stan, When Does He Sleep Lee? Illustrated by Don, When Does He Eat Heck? Lettered by Art, When Will He Learn to Spell Cymex? So, of course, Stan is presumably writing all these credits himself and often will use them to humiliate his employees in various ways. <laughs> and uh, we have that already starting here, accusing Art Simak of not being able to spell. Of course, Stan, you're the editor of the book. You're responsible for typos yourself. So then we get Iron Man. He sees that a box office is being robbed at, this is a vaudeville box office. So apparently uh, vaudeville was still a thing. He saves Umberto the contortionist, but then Umberto the contortionist actually saves himself. He manages to knock out the bad guy using his flips. Iron Man says, oh, thanks, you knocked him out for me. But then as Iron Man drags the bad guy away, Umberto thinks, why should a guy like me knock himself out entertaining rubes and crummy vaudeville shows when I can make a fortune by using my talent in other ways? So yes, we have many times in these comics, we have things that I didn't know still existed in the 60s that I associate more with the 20s or 30s. And this certainly falls under that category with a vaudeville show. But so then the contortionist decides he's going to become a Scarecrow-themed villain. He seems to decide this simply because he's walking down the street and happens to pass a costume shop, and they happen to have a Scarecrow costume sitting there. And he's like, Path of Least Resistance, I'll become a Scarecrow-themed villain. That's exactly what happened, yes. So then he breaks the glass, steals the Scarecrow costume. That's not just speculation on your part. That that isn't subtext. That is the text. (laughs) That is exactly what (laughs) happens. If he'd been walking by and they had, I guess Batmania hadn't started yet, but if they'd had a Batman costume in the window, he would become a Batman themed villain. So then he goes ahead and he happens to know someone who has a, he happens to know about Thornton and his trained crows who have been on the same bill with him for several months. It's one of his fellow vaudeville guys. But he knows that Thornton is retiring and isn't going to need his birds anymore. He won't miss the birds. So he goes ahead and takes the trained crows who usually perform with Thornton to be part of his scarecrow gig that he's going to have trained crows that now he can steal ready to go. We then cut to Pepper. A beautiful blonde has shown up to date Tony. Pepper just flat out lies and says, uh, sorry, Tony's standing you up. Goodbye. And sends her away. Tony's like, what happened to my blonde date? And she's like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't send her away. Oh, no, sir. There have been no blondes here all afternoon. And then Tony's like, okay. And he leaves. And then she thinks, anyway, I didn't really tell a lie. I could tell by the dark parting in her hair that she isn't really a blonde. So then, of course, Tony and happy go back to Tony's house, which is in the midst of being robbed by the Scarecrow. Complete coincidence that Iron Man encountered Umberto the Vaudevillian before, and now the Scarecrow is robbing Tony Stark. That's just coincidence. They fight. They go back and forth. Happy is trying to beat him up. Iron Man is trying to beat him up. He ties up Iron Man in a 
drapery at one point. Apparently that's one of Iron Man's secret weaknesses is drapery because it sort of flummoxes him for a while. It's not just drapery. It's ropes pulled by the crows that tie him up. So then the Scarecrow says, hmm, I got a better haul than I expected. Here are the plans for some new transistorized weapons Stark is designing for the Defense Department. A millionaire like Stark will pay a fortune to keep these from falling into the hands of the commies, and I'm just the guy to take that fortune from him. It's a little unclear here that the Scarecrow seems to, he does not sell the plans back to Tony, but he has Tony give him money, which is just the first installment where he's going to have to pay additional money. But of course, Tony has put a tracking device in the suitcase he's given to the Scarecrow, which is, of course, a transistorized tracking device. But the Scarecrow then says, I'd be insane to remain in America after stealing these plans. Soon I'll be safe forever in a land where all enemies of America are welcomed, a land where they will respect a man of my unusual talents. Before night falls, I'll be an honored visitor on the island of Cuba. So then he heads over to Cuba, but of course, at this point, Iron Man is tracking him, Iron Man is flying after him, and uh-oh, I'm running out of time. There we go. He goes ahead and gets to a Cuban boat. These are the plans for the new American weapons, I promise you. So apparently getting Tony Stark to pay for the plans, he never intended to sell the plans to Tony Stark and does not intend to extort any more money out of Tony Stark. He was always, I guess, going to hand the plans over to Cuba, but Iron Man has tracked him using the suitcase and goes and thrashes the Cuban villain, sinks the boat. The Cubans seemingly sink to their death, but the Scarecrow is rescued by his crows, which takes him doing, and the panel is totally unbelievable, but he does it. And then Tony goes back to Happy and Pepper, and he apparently, Tony suspects that Pepper has sent away his date, and so gets revenge by, instead of taking Pepper to a Broadway show, has Happy take Pepper to a Broadway show. And he thinks Stark knows about Veronica Vogue. That's why he's doing this. But just wait, he'll be sorry. I might even grow to like Happy, which is, of course, eventually what happens. She does eventually marry Happy. So then it cuts to the Scarecrow thinking, I underestimated Iron Man once, but I won't do it a second time. So, um, yeah, this is unfortunately a terribly silly issue with a terribly silly uh, villain. But one thing I will say is the crows have a lot of personality to them just in the art in the way that they're drawn, and uh, that tends to be quite entertaining to me. Uh, the crows are my favorite part of this, even though their existence is really stupid. <laughs> yes. Got things like uh, on the bottom of page eight, you see the uh, scarecrow running away from the, uh, from the tower that he had just been in. Happy says, holy smoke, I don't know how he got down there, but I sure ain't going to try it. And Scarecrow is thinking, he doesn't suspect that some of my crows were able to support my weight just enough to break my fall. So his crows were able to <laughs> keep him from falling to his death. Uh, I love the crows bringing him the telephone on page nine. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have enough fun with the crows in here, but generally a profoundly stupid villain uh, and a, uh, a, you know, not that great issue overall. Yes. It is, it is rather ridiculous. Okay, and then, of course, in the back, there's just the Tales of the Watcher, where, once again, we have Storypot, Stanley, Scription Art, Larry Labor, inking George Bell, another science fiction tale. So that then brings us up. So you just did Tales of Suspense, right? Yes. So I guess I'm going to do Tales to Astonish, um, which is... Wait, oh, where is Tales to Astonish? Um, oh, God, the porcupine. <laughs> I know, right? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, the return of the porcupine. As I said the last time, I kind of liked the way that Don Heck rendered the porcupine's costume, even though everything else about him was terrible. Uh, but here we don't even get that. <laughs> here we don't even get that. This uh, wait, is... wait, we need to we need to set our five minute timer. All right, five minutes start. All right, you've got your timer. 
Okay, so uh, this is Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp, Trapped by the Porcupine. So it starts out with the wasp and uh, a giant man doing some kind of exhibition for youngsters gaping below. I'm not sure uh, what the deal is there. But um, they're doing some some stuff up here, which is a little bit weird. Basically, Jane is uh, treating Hank as a tightrope. And of course, then the porcupine shows up and shoots him with some stuff. So he starts falling. Of course, he was the tightrope. He's then telling uh, Jan to shrink so that she can grow wings and uh, fly away. She's like, oh, I didn't think of that. I'm like, really? So uh, then, but then Giant Man just does a flip in the air because that will slow his speed and letting his legs absorb the force of the landing, which, you know, as I think you've described this as physics with the English majors, right? Yes. So, um, but then he lands, he hurts his ankle, the porcupine escapes and then thinks about his last adventures against Giant Man. He then is thinking, okay, I need to take another strategy here. Clearly just, you know, coming up to him isn't working. So he infiltrates the Giant Man fan club. Have we seen them before? I think we've seen them once before, yes, right? We yes, we saw them once before, but they were not dressed up in costumes that time. And this time right. they are dressed up in costumes. They're dressed up in costumes as Giant Man's villains. Uh, that he's fought and they're going to go and see him in the hospital or maybe not the hospital, but wherever his headquarters is or something like that to go and cheer him up by dressing up as his uh, villains. Well, of course, the porcupine has just infiltrated this group of kids, you know, this old, uh, you know, 40 something uh, scientist has infiltrated this group of kids and he's wearing his actual porcupine outfit. You would think this would work where like he just shows up in the porcupine outfit and pretends to be a kid in a porcupine outfit. But no, he shows up as an old man, not in the outfit. He says, I realize I'm considerably older than you lads. I hope you have no age limit for your members. And they say, gee, we never even thought about that. No, if you're a fan, you're a fan. And I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound sketchy at all. So the fan club goes in and is saying, giant man, giant man, rah, 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 giant man, giant man, sis, boom, ba, And... You know, so they're all just wearing these costumes, one of whom is wearing a Doctor Doom costume because Giant Man just doesn't have enough interesting villains. So they had to toss <laughs> Doctor Doom in there. And But Giant Man is seeing them all in their costumes and he says, I can't get over the porcupine's costume. It's so authentic looking. It doesn't seem as homemade as all the others. But he still doesn't quite figure it out. He's not very bright. I mean, no. yes, he's a scientist, but he's not very bright. Yes. So the porcupine ends up setting off this gas. Everyone's falling asleep, but Giant Man spins around to try and disperse the gas. Porcupine escapes. He has some kind of weird thing because he can't, like, fly very well. He has a big suction cup thing he uses to stop himself. It's all rather lame. But then he had lured Jan away and trapped her in this taxi that he had downstairs and then had brought her back to his headquarters and then traps her inside. But as it turns out, he had made it so that she could escape relatively easily so that then he could send some kind of homing device to follow her back to their house. So, and then meanwhile, Hank, who had said he couldn't change size while his foot was broken because that would cause pain or more injury or something like that. He, uh, after a while, was just like, well, I've got to rescue Jan, so just goes ahead and rips off his cast and, you know, is just fine with doing it anyway. The porcupine then bursts in at their house because he now knows where they are. There's something he does. He shoots out a flypaper thing at yes. Jan, <laughs> which... Okay. There is no safe place when you fight the porcupine. Watch my flypaper pellet bring her down. She says, oh no, if one of those large sticky sheets touch me, I'll be of no use to Giant Man, as opposed to the rest of the issue where she's been of so much use to Giant Man. I gotta say, <laughs> remember back when the Wasp had 
Like she would, she still doesn't have the ability to shoot lasers out of her hands, which is a major problem. But for a while she was just carrying around a pin and she yeah. called it her sting and she would poke people with a pin. Those days are long gone. The wasp is totally <laughs> incompetent in this issue and it's contributing nothing to nobody. And it is painful to read. Stan seems to be very sensitive to criticism of Sue and like, oh, you know, what do you mean Sue doesn't carry her own in the Fantastic Four? And he goes out of his way to make it clear that she carries her own in the Fantastic Four and then he's given her a lot more powers. He has not done that with the Wasp yet. Yeah, not yet. Uh, she will She will come She will come into her own eventually here. Uh, meanwhile, we've got Giant Man uh, growing and shrinking and doing all sorts of stuff to fight the porcupine. Uh, once again, growy, shrinky man uh, of some sort might have been more appropriate. Um Oh, well, you, you used up some of my time, I've got to say. I did. So, <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, the porcupine it then tries to reach, I, I guess, does reach in and grab some of the size-changing pellets from Giant Man. He thinks he got some giant-sized pellets, but he actually got some shrinking pellets, and he took too many of them, and he shrinks down to nothingness. So, uh, there we go. We'll never hear from the porcupine again, I'm sure. Which, if we've learned anything from the Fantastic Four, when you shrink down to nothingness, it means that you will soon conquer the Micro Kingdom. So maybe that's or, what we'll see. Or be enslaved by the Micro Kingdom. I mean, you know, yes. Doom could conquer the Micro Kingdom. I think Porcupine would do something less. Um, yeah. But then a- after that, the rest of the, uh, there's then a Stanley, Larry Lieber, um, you know, the wonderful wasp tells a tale in the back, uh, which is not worth discussing. No. Um, although I have to say, <laughs> Heck, uh-huh. it's Larry Lieber script and art uh, inking by Heck. I think Heck inking Lieber is shockingly fine. Like, yeah. you would think that would be the worst of all possible worlds, but I thought it was okay. Yes, so this is, I think the Porcupine is the lamest of all Chime Man villains, which is saying a lot. And yeah, saying he, a uh, lot. he continues to have no consistent theme. He continues to, you know, fly, shoot gas, do all sorts of things he wouldn't associate with Porcupine. A bizarre book, decent art by Ayers. He has taken over from Heck, at least for the time being. And But Heck is still in the back inking Larry Lieber. I guess we are moving on to X-Men, yes? Let's go ahead and do X-Men number four. This is a monumentous issue. This is a very big issue. X-Men number four. At last, the X-Men come face-to-face with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, featuring the return of the dreaded Magneto. And so on the cover, right away, we've got Magneto with four new characters. Mastermind, the Toad, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. Now, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are colored differently on the cover than they are for the rest of the book. Scarlet Witch is green, despite the fact she is called Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver <laughs> is blue, which is how I grew up with Quicksilver. Quicksilver was blue in the 1980s, but for most of the 60s and 70s, he was green. Inside this issue, Scarlet Witch is red, Quicksilver is green. So right. we begin the issue, sensational script by Stanley, dynamic drawings by Jack Kirby, imaginative inking by Paul Reinman, legible lettering by Art Simon. I get the feeling that Stan let Art come up with that himself, and he just had a self-deprecating sense of humor. I mean, I don't oh, that, know that That's entirely possible. It's just the feeling I get. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah. If, if Art didn't like how it was, he could have changed it himself. He was the one doing the lettering. So right. for the first time, we we once again see Professor Xavier putting his kids through horrific death traps. And for the first time, it's called the Danger Room. <laughs> Keeps coming up with innovative ways to try and kill them. They are fighting each other. Then he has Marvel Girl open up a box. And inside the box is a cake. 
and he is giving them a cake to celebrate one year of his school. That does not necessarily mean one year since issue number one. Presumably the school was going for some time before issue number one. They're always a little unclear as to how precise Cyclops can be with his beams. It always feels very strange when he can be very precise with his beams as he slices this cake here. It's a delightful visual. The angles don't really seem to make sense, but who cares? That looks beautiful. But now we leave Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters and turn our attention to another group of mutants who are also seated at a table. But what a world of difference we shall find between these two superhuman groups. So right away, we have these four great legendary characters that will give us so many wonderful stories going forward. We have the sniveling little toad, a little mutant who leaps around. We have Mastermind, who creates illusions. We have Quicksilver, who runs very fast. And we have Scarlet Witch, who does her hex powers to basically jinx things and make them fall apart on people. They'll get a lot of use out of the toad over the years. He'll sort of be the one who stays with Magneto after everyone else leaves Magneto. It's funny how little use they get out of Mastermind. Mastermind is great in this issue. He's, you know, we sense how powerful he is right away and that he's essentially able to take over a country by just creating an illusion that he's got an invading army. But then he will not be around as much in these first 67 issues or so of X-Men, and they will not get as much use of him as they could. And then he will very memorably return for an epic storyline, the greatest storyline of all time, the greatest X-Men storyline of all time, the Dark Phoenix saga, where he will have enter into a horrific relationship with Jean Grey and create illusions that will drive her totally insane. And, and mm-hmm. it seems to me that, that I was noticing reading this that uh, the top of page five almost seems to prefigure that with him talking yes. to Wanda. Yes. I'll now create an illusion so realistic it will drive you to the point of raving madness, which is exactly right. what he eventually does to Jean Grey. And of course, both Jean Grey and Wanda eventually end up like getting driven to the point of big villain stuff at one point in the future. So that I just noticed that sort of parallel there. Yes. So then... We see that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are siblings, and they're very protective of each other. Neither of them appreciate how Mastermind is treating them or Toad. They're waiting for Magneto to return. We then cut to... <laughs> the office is... of a large shipping line. What now, is... this, doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Because the thing yes. is, they're saying, have we received all the bids for that old ex-convoy freighter with the cannons on her deck? Now, this seems to me that this should be like something being decommissioned from the Navy or something like that. So... Uh, you know, what merchant ship is going to have cannons on the deck? I mean, I guess Merchant Marine? I don't know, but one way or so, the other, yeah. It, it so, yeah, sense. Magneto, if you're Magneto and you want to steal an ex-convoy freighter with cannons on her deck, you can just do it. You don't need to show up at the office and inform them, like, <laughs> wait, don't, please don't accept any other bids. I'm here. I'm going to take the ship. It's like, well, you don't intend to pay for the ship, so just steal it. You don't need to show up and get the deed, but he insists on having the deed. So then he takes the he, ship. He he's he's going he's gonna to be playing for pinks later. So, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Greece, Greece reference people. I don't know. OK, right. I was thinking of Fast and the Furious because I'm young and hip. So then. <laughs> sure. So then he Magneto sails off controlling the giant ship. The angel just happens to be flying over and finds it rather strange that there's this giant ship with no crew. Uh, it's just a sheer coincidence that he happens to fly over a magnetic ship. He goes back and he reports everything to Professor Xavier. Professor Xavier is a little weirded out. Let me just again say how amazing Paul Reinman's inks are on this issue. They are mm-hmm. just fantastic. It looks even more like Steve Rude, especially, I should say, the panel, the upper right 
panel on page five with Wanda pointing at Mastermind is especially beautiful. Best we've seen Kirby looking so far in the Marvel Universe. Angel tells Professor X, uh, there was a ship out there by itself. And Professor X is like, um, something about that sounds really bad, but oh well. <laughs> so then cut back to Magneto goes back to the Brotherhood, finds some fighting amongst each other. He's not happy about it. Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver right away are like, uh, we don't know what we're doing here. We're not really that evil. And he says, but you have to be with us. Don't you remember? Don't you remember when I found you in a small Eastern European village and they were about to hang your sister as a witch and I saved you both? And so this is a story that will get revisited a lot over the years as yeah. it turns out that this was him actually being reunited with them and he was actually their parent. And then... Only much later do we find out when Marvel loses the rights to make mutant movies that he is, in fact, not their parent. And they are mutants and they aren't mutants and everything goes back and forth a million times. But yes. and then, of course, the one question I always had as a kid is like, well, wait, how could it have been a shocking reveal that Magneto was Quicksilver's father when they have the exact same hair? But of course... <laughs> They don't reveal, we never get to see Magneto with his helmet off until like issue 65 or something. People just had no idea they had the same hair because we never got to see Magneto with his helmet off. So then Magneto announces to his team, we're going to take over a country. We're going to take over the tiny Republic of Santo Marco. We're going to take this battleship I've got and we're going to go take it over. In inevitably in these comics, nobody ever acts on these things before stuff has time to make the paper. The papers, yeah. there's a short turnaround time in the paper. And in these days when we're used to lightning fast communication it always shocks me that whole news cycles go by before people react to anything in these things but so he's reading it in the paper he calls up the x-men i just love the pictures of the x-men just what they're doing in their downtime before they get this red alert beast is reading his books with his glasses on and writing on a chalkboard with his toes writing some sort of mathematical equation Yes. Uh, Gene is doing calisthenics. Warren is just listening to a hi-fi system, it looks like. And Bobby is, of course, eating ice cream. Still hasn't been made clear that he can create his own ice cream, which will be made clear in a couple of issues. But he certainly <laughs> loves ice cream, and that surely can't be a coincidence with him being Iceman. We don't get to see what Scott's up to, oddly enough. But so then... We see they find Professor Xavier seemingly asleep. Professor Xavier is actually having a little mental conference with Magneto. This is something that they would occasionally do, even though Magneto wasn't generally shown as having psychic powers. There was sort of like he had a special psychic bond with Xavier and they would chat psychically on several occasions. And at times Magneto even seemed to be able to initiate this. They have an argument about we must use our powers to bring about a golden age on Earth side by side with ordinary humans. Magneto says, never. The humans must be our slaves. They are not worthy to share dominion of Earth with us. So again, it was later, people these days talk about like, oh, the racial stuff wasn't a big deal in the early issues. It was. It was here. Cut to Santo Marco. We then get just a really badass sequence showing how badass Mastermind could be. You know, this very scary army is marching in. The whole town is surrendering. It's just a illusory army that they have. I guess, do they have a few actual soldiers? Well, I mean, they've got one actual, you know, ship with guns on it. Uh, but I think that's about it. I think they essentially just end up uh, co-opting the existing military there, as far as I can tell. Oh, okay. So they just take control of the existing military using their illusory military. I mean, that, that, that's what I think, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. So then, I mean, obviously there's somebody here because then the X-Men, this is all very similar to like an episode of Mission Impossible, which I guess wasn't on TV yet, but they all have to sort of enter the country and their civilian identities and uh, sneak into the country. And then they're plotting within the country about how to do it. 
they decide to attack the castle where Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are. Of course, one of the big problems with this issue and with this concept is that they call themselves the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and we're about to have the Masters of Evil in the Avengers. I don't think that they would have called themselves evil. Like, it's one thing the Masters of Evil, like, at least the Masters of Evil are like, we're here together because we primarily hate the Avengers. We're willing to accept our place as bad guys. We're basically evil. But the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants really thinks of themselves as the good guys. It was much better in the Ultimate Comics where they just called themselves the Brotherhood, which is a much more logical name. Isn't that where they so eventually that, went to calling them in the 616 universe eventually years and years later? That would totally make sense. Let's assume they did. So then they decide to attack the castle. First, the beast tries to climb the walls and gets in a fight with the toad. They are similar characters, but they complement each other well. We then see Angel try to attack. He then gets attacked by Quicksilver. They have a nice little fight. But then Scarlet Witch comes up and makes something fall on the Angel. That's sort of the only way they really knew to use her powers early on was just to have her hex make stuff fall over. There's a bit of a misunderstanding where Marvel Girl thinks that the good guys are the bad guys and she is hurling spears at them. The women just do not come off well this month in (laughs) Marvel Comics. Jean does not seem like she is being very helpful, slightly more helpful than the Wasp, but, but that is not saying anything. So then they think they're surrounded by fire they're like, oh, what are we going to do? Professor X then shows up and rolls right through the fire. And it's like, nope, that was Mastermind Fire. You guys are being tricked. Let's go tackle the bad guys. <laughs> Magneto at this point has decided, okay, we're going to lose. Let's go ahead and set two bombs. One bomb to up the castle and another nuclear bomb to blow up the whole country. And Quicksilver's like, well, I can understand blow up the castle, but you really shouldn't send a nuclear bomb to blow up the whole country. And Magneto's like, ah, what are you going to do about it? So then they're going up to the door. On their their very ADA compliant fortress here. Yes. This is you know lots of ramps and uh, all sorts of stuff that a person in a wheelchair can just quickly wheel down, which was pretty advanced for a uh, Central American country in the 60s. Yes, it's very impressive. So then Professor X and the X-Men are going up to a door. Xavier knows that the door is triggered with a bomb. He throws himself at the door, which is a pretty impressive feat to do when you're in a wheelchair, it blows up and he gets completely, they say, he's still conscious, but he's delirious in his eyes. They are so glazed. Cut to Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants getting away. There's a fun panel where they're all sliding down a chute together. But then yeah. at the last minute, Quicksilver says, you know, I'm going to go back and dismantle that nuclear bomb because that just wasn't cool. That wasn't cricket. We can't do that. <laughs> and then, but decides to go off with Magneto anyway, because of course they think they owe Magneto their life. So right away, we've got it set up that eventually Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, they're not really evil. They'll eventually turn good. They don't want to nuke a whole country. The X-Men then go back and find that Professor Xavier has lost his powers, says he's alive, but something terrible has happened. His brain seems to be affected. His brain, but that's his greatest weapon. And he says, leave me. I'm no good to you anymore. The explosion deaded of my mutant mental power. I can no longer read minds or throw my thoughts. Go after the evil ones. Forget me. Forget you, sir. Never. We can't desert you when you need us the most. So they let the Brotherhood get away. And they stay with Xavier, wondering what they're going to do now without his power. So already there's a sense that Xavier is too powerful. Lee is going like, I sort of screwed up. You know, we've had a couple of issues where Xavier just comes in at the end and lowers the boom and uses his mental powers to take care of everything. And that was a mistake. And we need to have, we need to come up with what turns out to be one of many different ways to deny Professor Xavier's power to the X-Men. This is, as you said, a momentous issue in the, or mania momentous, in that it introduces the Brotherhood, or the Brotherhood of Mutants, or in this case, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. You know, once again, the whole thing about uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, 
being complicated right from the get-go is not something I would have assumed looking back on this stuff. You know, that feels kind of like the thing where they develop a little bit of a personality as time goes on. And it's like, oh, okay, why are these, you know, characters acting the way they are? But no, I really like the the complicated backstory they have and their complicated motivations uh, right from the get-go. Yes. The Toad is is just very much a toady. I mean, he is... You know, I, I think that's the whole thing. It's like, oh, here's uh, here's Magneto's toady. So what's he? Well, let's just call him the toad. And he sort of hops around like a toad. Sure. Why not? Um, that sounds superior to uh, regular human beings. And so, he so <laughs> when I read these comics to my kids, uh, you know, I, I well, when I read these comics to my son, I was pretty good about having hundreds of different accents. You know, I just finished reading him Harry Potter, the Harry Potter novels and I certainly had a hundred different accents for Harry Potter and I've got at least a hundred different accents for Marvel comics. And the toad is always Peter Lorre. <laughs> yeah, no, that totally makes sense. <laughs> I got you on that one. What other closing thoughts do you have on uh, this issue of X-Men? I think this is an absolutely beautiful issue with the Kirby Reinman art. I think we've only got one more issue after this of Reinman, then he disappears from the Marvel universe. And that is tragic. I think that, it is beautifully written. I think that this is continuing to introduce fantastic characters that are going to give us so many great stories. The whole takeover of Small Country thing, classic example of a story that could have been epic, uh, crammed into oh, yeah. a shockingly small number of pages. But uh, but it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. We were talking about both of us going back and re-listening to our, our previous episodes. I keep on hearing these little things that I do, like saying, absolutely. And I'm like, wow, I do that a lot. <laughs> uh, I start getting self-conscious about it. So uh, I guess we're moving on to our last comic of this particular month, The Avengers number four, which is one of the most important issues that we have gotten to so far. And possibly yes. one of the most important issues that we will get to. I guess it's my turn, huh? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, I, I get to uh, I get the honor of introducing this. So I mean, we should say we should say this issue, like the three previous issues of the vendors we've read, is so bizarre and oh, so yeah. a book that seems to have had greatness <laughs> thrust upon it rather than coming about it naturally. This is not really great comics, but it is it is Money momentous. It is huge. It is hugely important. But who boy is this a bizarre issue? Well, it, it's just such a mix of really uh, creative uh, problem solving and storytelling by the by the authors, uh, and com- together with stuff that just really wasn't thought out and makes no sense. So, yes, but we'll we'll be getting to that. As Avengers number four, Captain America lives again. Also in this sensational issue, Submariner. Uh, And we have this really uh, epic and timeless shot on the cover of Captain America charging towards the reader with the rest of the Avengers following behind. Great famous cover. I would say it is a classic cover. It is, however, horribly inked by George Bell. So I would I, I wouldn't call it great. Okay, Gloriously written by Stan Lee, grandly illustrated by Jack Kirby, gallantly lettered by Art Symak. So when I first went through this, I was thinking, oh, maybe Jack Kirby asked to go ahead and ink this himself since it's his original, you know, his original creation coming back. But as you said, no, it's uh, apparently just for some reason they didn't credit uh, George Rizos on this one. Because they were ashamed that they had hired him. Right. So we have a little bit of a flashback of uh, the Avengers fighting Submariner recently and uh, Submariner leaving in disgust after their uh, after their battle going into the sea. And he ends up coming out out 
Uh, and he's searching for his people. But when searching for his people, he ends up coming across a tribe of... Now, I'm... Okay, this is one thing. It says a tribe of Eskimos. I am under the impression that the term that should be used these days is Inuit. Although I brought that up in some other forum and someone is like, well, the Inuits are a particular group of those sorts of people and people who are not Inuit, but also under the umbrella of what we would have called Eskimo, don't like it when you call them Inuit. And then someone else was like, oh, well, in Canada, basically Eskimo is the preferred term. And then just so I don't know. Anyway, one way or the other, if it is offensive, I apologize. I am very unclear on this, but yes, finds, I am as he well. Finds, he finds a group of as they describe them in here, Eskimos, who are worshipping some sort of ice block that has a human form inside of it. So Mariner, like any colonizer, comes in and finds uh, the native people worshipping or using some unique-looking object, and is like, oh, hello, I must go find what this thing is. Hello, I will go ahead and take it from you and destroy it. So he does so, but then he can't really uh, do much. He's just, you know, basically still lashing out in impotent fury uh, about his plight. So, uh, but this ends up dislodging the frozen Iceman and uh, sending him into the ocean, where then he starts thawing. So, okay, two really bizarre things when we get to page four. So many bizarre things. Yes, one... The Avengers are in an undersea craft and happen to find Captain America. There is never even an attempt at an explanation for why all of the Avengers are in an undersea craft. No, no, there's no there's no mention of, hey, we're looking for the Submariner or, you know, we're doing some research for something or any of a number of things that they could be doing. But no, they're just like, oh, hey, look, here are the Avengers and their undersea craft. And hey, what's that body floating by? (laughs) And then the other thing is, I totally forgotten that he had thawed like he was no longer encased in ice when they found him. So he was just floating under the ocean, thawed out. Yes. Right. And then Giant Man, of course, reaches out. You never you never have an explanation for how the airlocks work on this thing. But Giant Man <laughs> no. just reaches out and grabs him and brings him in. And then we have, you know, once again, what I consider a, a fantastic uh, panel in the middle of the page of Captain America with his mask off, blonde hair, all tousled looking, and he's got his, sh- his uh, shield on his chest and shredded army clothes all over him uh, while he has his Captain America uniform on underneath that, while Thor and Iron Man both look at each other in astonishment. So this is a very famous panel, a very famous moment, one of the most iconic moments in Marvel history. It is so weird. Captain America was in action when he fell into the ice. He was in action. He was fighting Baron Zemo. He was trying to stop a missile. Why wasn't he just wearing his full costume? Why wasn't he just, why did he have on civilian clothes? Why did he not have on his hood? And seemingly he had his cowl in a pocket. So he's got his cowl, but he wasn't wearing it on his head. And he's got his shield not strapped to his back, which would be strange enough given that he was in action at the time, but strapped to his chest. Like, why would you strap, why would you put on your Captain America outfit, then strap your shield to your chest, then take off your cowl, put it in your pocket, then put on army clothes over your Captain America outfit and over your shield, and then go into action. It is so strange. It would make so much more sense for him to just be in his Captain America outfit right here with his shield on his back, 
wearing his cowl. Let's just say that maybe our headcanon here is that that's not civilian or not army, you know, an army uniform that's shredded on top of him. That's just seaweed. And then, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's not like the shield is strapped to his chest, but it's just when they pull him in, that's how where they set it down. I think, I think that's gonna, that, that's gonna take care of probably at least three quarters of your problems. If we just go ahead and decide that's what's going on here. Okay. I'm so, willing to do that. So anyway, Captain America suddenly comes to, and he's shouting, Bucky, Bucky, look out. You can't kill him. You can't kill Bucky. I won't let you. I'll smash you all. And then the uh, Avengers have to restrain him. And uh, he's then like, wait, what's going on? Where, where, who am I? You know, where, how did I get here? So then he uh, puts on the rest of his costume and, uh, you know, says, I am Captain America. The Avengers were like, "Ah, I don't know, man, we haven't heard of you in a while. And why aren't you old? And uh, we don't seem to think about this. So they basically sort of um, more or less have a fight. And then they're like, oh, okay, no, by the way, he fights, we, we, we buy it. And where was it here? Like, right? Early on, before he really should know that he's been frozen for decades, he says something about, like, yeah, forget that I was once the man the world called Captain America. He does not yet know he's been asleep for 20 years. I assume that we have not heard all of the dialogue that has happened, that they have had some time to talk to him about what has happened uh, off off panel here, because, yes, he is. He seems to have figured out the situation a little too quickly. So then we get the uh, flashback to Bucky's death, and it is, uh, you know, they've retold this story many, many, many times, including in the Captain America, the first Avenger movie, which is, you know, uh, no, actually, that's not very true to this, because in there, they had already had Bucky fall to his seeming death uh, earlier in the movie. Bucky and, you know, I guess Captain America, at, well, right there, he's as Steve Rogers. He is in his Steve right. Rogers uniform there. But so they're he, he in action. Have- why aren't they in action as Captain America and Bucky? Why are they? You would think it'd be one thing if they were like wearing Nazi uniforms, like they were undercover infiltrating the Nazi base in Nazi uniforms. It just, well, it's unclear to me if they're even in a Nazi base or in an American base. So the, one of the strange things about this is we get an extremely underwhelming villain introduction. We get our first glance of Baron Zemo, but he is not named and we do not see any details. He is a black silhouette. We just know that there is some sort of villain who is not named and you cannot make any details out of who says, ha, thus do I triumph over Captain America and Bucky. If they reach the plane, they die. And if they fail, America loses one of its newest weapons. So even though Captain America and Bucky are in civilian clothes, uh, this villain, whoever he is, this unnamed villain knows who they are, knows that it's Captain America and Bucky in their civilian clothes. Nice, spectacular sequence, nice, spectacular Kirby sequence of them writing a motorcycle up a ramp so that they can leap off and leap onto a little flying bomb and try to defuse it. They'll be more clear over the years of why Captain America let go and Bucky did not, which doesn't Mm -hmm. really seem in keeping with Cap's character, but they'll sort of explain that better over the course of years. But in here, it's not exactly clear. It looks like Cap's just like, oh, we'd better give up. It's booby-trapped. And Bucky says, you're right, Cap. I can see the fuse. It's going to blow. It would be made clear later on. Well, sometimes it would be made clear that Bucky specifically sacrificed himself, but it's not exactly clear in this issue what exactly goes on. Right. I, I think that sometimes they, they basically show that he basically kicks Steve off of the, the throne or whatever at some point. Like, yeah. you know, I'm saving you by knocking off of this thing. But anyway, we then see him plunge into the icy waters. So then... We return to New York. Let's see, they've got a lot of press showing up there. I'm trying to remember 
why so the, oh they know right they know we went after the hulk they expect a big story there you go but they get a different big story than they thought well i guess they're going to here we think that they're going to see a blinding flash takes place and then all of the all the avengers seem to be statues now and uh the press once again they're all just like oh that's a crummy trick uh you know it's like oh yeah we're not worried about them having turned into statues we're just mad at them for not actually giving us what we want <laughs> so, because people are terrible to the heroes of the marvel universe says uh oh, probably some kind of trick the avengers used to duck out of an interview like you just saw them you know suddenly freeze turn to stone statues as if they had been seen by a medusa and they're just like that's a pretty crummy trick to pull on us after waiting all day for this interview let's go find him they couldn't have gotten far so they just think that I guess they think that somehow the Avengers have run away and replaced themselves with statues to get out of being interviewed. And then Captain America, who for some reason wasn't with them right away, I guess he was waiting to be introduced and then eventually gives up. And then he comes out and he's like, huh, that's interesting. There are statues of the Avengers here. Oh, in such strange poses. Anyway, off into the city. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to hang out here and try to figure out where they are or what's going on. I'm just going to go on in. So then he sees the UN building, which, of course, was not there when he was last in New York. And he's going around looking at all the new cars and all sorts of stuff. But then the, the police officer that's there, who basically bursts into tears seeing Captain America, just, you know, having seen him as a kid at one point, he then bursts into tears with, uh, with you know, gratitude, love, awe. I don't know what you would say. But uh, he directs Captain America to a nearby hotel. Now, I assume he doesn't have any cash on him, so I'm not exactly sure how he's paying for the hotel. Maybe they just see him. They're like, hey, Captain America, you can stay for free. But then he tries to sleep in the bed, but then he's having nightmares. Uh, He has a nightmare about Bucky. Um, But then it turns out that he wakes up, and this is actually Rick Jones, says, I've followed your trail halfway across town. They tell me you were the last to see the Avengers. And I got to find them. So how about doing a little talking? And um, Steve is just amazed by how much Rick Jones looks like Bucky Barnes. And so he's uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, weirded out by this whole thing. But then sort of takes Rick in for this reason. Now, Rick, this is going to be Rick's second superhero groupie relationship. Um, yes. first he was First, he was the Hulk's sort of superhero groupie. Now he's going to become Captain America's superhero groupie. He will eventually go on to be partnered in one way or another with uh, Captain Marvel. He will then go back to Hulk. Uh, so he just, he's done all uh, sorts of things. Rom, don't forget about Rom Space Knight. He's Rom Space Knight sidekick for a while. Oh, was he? Yes. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'd forgotten that. So yeah, he has a really long and varied but, uh, you know, history as a sidekick. It's interesting because, like, Stan Lee clearly hasn't decided yet that he's going to bring the Hulk back for his own comic. I would think by this point, Stan Lee is, would be starting to go like, uh, maybe the Hulk should get his own comic again. Certainly he has not been willing to leave the Hulk alone for very long. The Hulk has been constantly showing up as a guest star in other books. And, like, clearly, if the Hulk gets his own book back, he's going to need Rick back. Rick is such a big part of the Hulk mythos. But... Stan is starting to go like, oh, Rick's too good a character to pass up. Let's go ahead and hook him up with Captain America and have him be Captain America's sidekick. But at some point, Hulk's going to come and poach Rick back. And Hulk's going to go like, nope, I need Rick more. And then Captain America, the whole idea of Rick becoming the new Bucky or a new Bucky-like figure is eventually sort of just dropped. 
Yeah, well, it, it, it goes on for a few months here and uh, it gets a little bit weird. Um, yes, I'm, I'm sort of glad to see the Captain America uh, sidekick thing fall away uh, before too long. He is uh, less annoying sidekicking for other characters than Captain America. So somehow uh, they have gotten uh, Captain America or Rick has gotten a hold of some of the film that was taken, I think, by the press at um, at this whole thing where everyone turned to stone. I'm not quite sure where the film comes from, but they go ahead and find a dark room belonging to one of Rick's teen brigade members. And they go ahead and develop this film and they can see that there was somebody in the press corps who had something that does not look like a camera. It looks like some sort of super science ray gun. And he finds the actual guy. So he bursts through the window and the guy then has a bunch of uh, gun moles with him who start uh, firing we then have the first time in modern Marvel history where Captain America throws his mighty shield uh, and those who chose to oppose his shield must yield as the old uh, 1960s cartoon theme song went. Um, and, yes. and, I, and I love that panel at the top of page 13 where he's throwing the shield. It's just like, ah, OK, yeah, this is this is the stuff right here. So, yes. uh, so then he has a big fight with all of these gangsters. And uh, gets up to the main bad guy and takes off the mask. And once again, it's mask technology so outpaces our own. He takes off this mask and finds out that it is an asparagus looking alien underneath there. I think of them as broccoli aliens. You're right. It, it's in some ways asparagus. <laughs> Have we seen this race before? It seems like this is going to be a classic 60s Marvel one-off race. And right. then many years later, Jean mm-hmm. Grey becomes Dark Phoenix and goes insane and goes and blows up a son. And then John Byrne, who was supposedly dispensing the book, but was really co-plotting the book, he, in a very much classic example, classic Marvel method problem, he then says, oh, wait, when Phoenix blows up a son, wouldn't she also be blown up some planets? I'll go ahead and bizarrely show this race, this yes. asparagus head or broccoli headed race getting blown up along with the sun. And which Claremont had not intended, Chris Claremont, who wrote that issue, had not intended for an actual race of people to be destroyed by Phoenix. And so then the boss of Marvel Comics at the time, Jim Shooter, is like, uh, you can never redeem her now. She killed off an entire race of people. And so this poor race was eventually doomed to be killed off there and then resulting in uh, they had to kill off Phoenix uh, because she was irredeemable after killing them all off. So it seemed like this would be the only time we would ever see these guys. But who boy, no. Yeah. <laughs> Although I remember in that um, when they reprinted in the high quality format, the original version of that issue of X-Men where Dark Phoenix dies, where she didn't die in the original version. Um, they have an interview in the back or sort of a roundtable discussion between uh, all of the creators of that particular issue. And at one point, I think that John Burns somehow ends up blaming Terry Austin, the inker. For that what? whole thing. Yeah, I know. And I, think oh, I don't remember thing, this. Yeah, and Terry Austin is like, wait, what? How is this? Huh? <laughs> like, what's going on? Uh, I don't remember what convoluted way they used to do it. But yes, I remember uh, them trying to say, oh, it's something that Terry Austin said and this, that, and the other. 
Anyway, one way or the other, he uh, they take off the mask and it's this uh, some kind of vegetable looking uh, alien here. The other goons were human and they are like, he's like, Cashmark says, I was right, you're not a human. And they're like, holy cow, look what we've been working for. Let me out of here. I had it. <laughs> me for the straight and narrow from now on. So they all run away and it's just <laughs> Captain America and the alien guy. So Captain America interrogates the guy and it turns out that he is an alien that crash landed on the Earth centuries ago. Uh, but his ship got buried in the silt in the ocean. And so he's just been hanging around ever since. He has, you know, turned men to stone. And because he has this sort of mop head, supposedly this was the source of the legend of Medusa that uh, people saw people turning to stone with this uh, figure in the background with this crazy hair. And they said, uh, that that's what Medusa is. So he then says, hey, you know what? We can probably give get you back to where you're going if uh, you you know, release the uh, Avengers from the spell. He's like, oh, really? Yeah, okay, let's let's go ahead and do that. He says, well, why'd you turn the Avengers to stone? It says, because the one who calls himself the Submariner found me some days ago, told me he would free my ship from the ocean depths if I would turn the Avengers to stone. I had to do it. So everything has come full circle now. We've come back to this being an issue about the Submariner. And, but then he says, he goes like, well, you don't need Submariner help. We can help you. Turn us, turn the Avengers back from stone. And we'll get your ship out and you, we can just cut, cut out the middleman. We can just cut out the Submariner entirely. So then meanwhile, we cut back to the Submariner who is underwater and uh, he happens to see some of his elite guard swimming by. So he's been looking for his people. He sees some of them here and uh, we see him go off with them or go off to follow them. But then we don't, we don't find out what's going on there until uh, later in the issue. So um, the Avengers then accompany this alien to the site where uh, their, where his ship had buried itself in the silt. They free the ship and uh, the broccoli-headed guy gets in it and he's going to take off. But then uh, while he's in the ship, uh, Submariner shows up with his elite guard. So apparently his elite guard have not uh, given up on him. They have been looking for him and are still loyal to him. With them, he attacks the Avengers. There is a big fight, which is quite spectacular. Of course, you know, Jan just ends up, you know, buzzing around his head like a mosquito or something like that. Which just sort of yeah. like... So she desperately needs her lasers. She desperately at least needs her pin back. She needs something. <laughs> but she does at least get to do a little bit of good, just quickly flying in circles around around Submariner. And he says, what is this? I, I cannot see because I've got this little superheroine flying around in circles around my eyes. It is pretty pitiful. Yes. So then uh, the fight moves on to uh, Thor, who is able to use Mjolnir to take the energy blasts from the weapons of the Atlanteans and send them right back at them. So then we get into a um, uh, one-on-one battle between Submariner and Thor. Meanwhile, a sharp-eyed, colorful figure watches everything that transpires branding all the amazing tales into his memory. And so Captain America is thinking to himself, I know so little about this new crop of costumed fighters. My best bet is to watch them in action, see how powerful they really are. Their courage is undeniable. Even the Submariner is a fearless foe. If there had been such men in my day, what epic battles we might have fought. Now, of course, this is a huge problem because they keep bringing back the old Marvel Universe a little bit at a time. And they... Captain America and Submariner knew each other in World War II. They interacted a little bit in the old World War II comics back in the 1940s and maybe even a bit in the 1950s. But later, they will establish that they were part of a superhero team together in World War II called the Invaders. And 
you have this huge problem where you have this issue in which clearly neither of them has ever met the other or heard of the other, despite the fact they were both big parts of the Allied war effort. Now, later, Brian Cronin will explain on Comics Should Be Good why, how this is explained away later, that they are both having memory problems, that Submariner is still having memory problems from when he was living as a Bowery bum all those years, and Captain America is still having memory problems from being frozen. And so then they would later explain that, yes, these two knew each other very well, but right now, since they were both having memory problems, neither one remembered the other. That, I, I totally buy that explanation, uh, but I will point out that earlier in the issue, Captain America does talk about being, you know, saying that Submariner, yeah, that seems to ring a bell somewhere. Uh, but he can't quite put his finger on it. And that would seem to bolster exactly what you're saying there, that it's just, you know, <laughs> hey, I just got unfrozen. And my brain's not too good yet. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's like, I don't know, that sounds familiar. I, I think I've heard of that guy. And so they're they're continuing to battle Submariner and his henchmen along with the Avengers. But it is all um, disrupted by the aliens spaceship coming up out of the ocean, which goes ahead and creates all sorts of havoc on the land. So uh, Submariner and his elite guard leave. It is an indecisive battle. Uh, the alien seems to be going off home, uh, only to be doomed to die later at the hand of Dark Phoenix, but we don't know that <laughs> yet. <laughs> they then get back together, and Rick Jones is left thinking at the very end about Captain America. He's the greatest guy I ever met, and I can tell he wants me to be his partner. But what about the Hulk? He's sure to return someday. And when he finds out that Captain America has replaced him, will anything be able to stop him then? Well, of course, as we've already discussed in this podcast, Rick Jones is usually way more into other people than they are into him. So I think he's really overthinking the whole thing about like, what will Hulk say? It's just like, yeah, Hulk will probably be like, hey, good. I don't have to worry about that pesky teenager anymore. But, uh, you know. Of course, he's a teenager, so everything's all about him. Oh. You skipped it at the end. They go ahead and offer Captain America membership in the Avengers. I guess I was sort of thinking that went without saying, but I should have said it. <laughs> yeah. So then they say, right, we have an offer to propose to Captain America. Captain America can figure out what they're about to say. And it says, I've seen you in battle and there are none braver. If your offer is what I hope it is, my answer is yes. It says, we welcome you, Captain America, to the ranks of the Avengers. So they yes. have now officially replaced the Hulk. Like I said, you know, this is an one of the most important issues in the Marvel, Mar- in the modern Marvel comics, in, ter- in that it brings back Captain America, who obviously is, you know, to this day, a, a um, an epic and iconic character. Um, but yeah, there is just all this bizarre stuff. You know, what were the Avengers doing underwater? What What were they doing? <laughs> I want, come on, give me a throwaway sentence. You know, give me some sort of, uh, oh, well, our research mission I mean, to, you know. I think I they know. were searching for Submariner. It's it's believable enough that Tony Stark would give them a submarine to search for the Submariner in. I mean, I can fill in the gaps here. Okay, maybe so. Um, but one way or the other, uh, you know, I, and I really think that the way, like the story that he wrote about what happened to Bucky and Captain America making it and Bucky not is really setting the character up to have some three-dimensionality to him going forward. Um, You know, he's not just like, hello, here I am, Sentinel of Liberty, and I'm going to kick butt in the name of America. You know, it's now like, hey, you know, my, the, the teenager who is my very good friend and really my responsibility 
ended up dying on my watch and I survive. And he sort of has some real survivor's guilt about this. But then it also sets up the whole man out of time thing, which uh, they play with more and more as the 60s go on. And it really, I think, you know, takes this character that, you know, as as you said in an earlier episode, you know, they're thinking, you know, how can we make this corny character work in this modern world, in this case, the modern world being the early 60s, and then they find a way to actually make it really, really work. I've heard that Stan Lee hated the character of Bucky. Um, and yeah. so, uh, you know, I think that on one on one hand. That's why he was like, okay, well, we're bringing Captain America back, but I do not want to have to write Bucky. We're killing him off. Uh, but, you know, even if it was just that venal when it comes to, you know, the, the motivations behind this, uh, what came out of it really was terrific for the stories that are going to be going forward. Yes. And they get many wonderful stories over the years out of his guilt about Bucky's death and how that deepens and enriches his character. And then eventually, of course, they had to pay it all off and they had to go like, okay, if we've gotten so many good stories out of Bucky being dead, imagine what we can do now if Bucky were still alive. And yes. that became such an iconic part of the character as well that that quickly got incorporated into Earth's Mighty Heroes and then it got it incorporated right away in the first Captain America movie. They are setting up Bucky to come back to life right away. That became the second Captain America movie was Captain America the Winter Soldier, which is what Bucky becomes. And that became uh, that at the time, relatively recent storyline, that storyline from the early 2000s um, quickly got adapted and quickly became a centerpiece of the Captain America mythos. But I think that, you know, so the man out of time element, I think is really strong. You know, it's interesting that they could have just had him just still be alive or they could have had him be frozen or knocked out in some way, but not be someone who was still had a young body because like when they bring Nick Fury back, you know, I when I was growing up, like it was explained that Nick Fury had an age because he had the Infinity Formula. Well, that didn't come about until Nick Fury had been back for 15 years, because for the first 15 years after Nick Fury came back, he was just back. He was just 20 years <laughs> older. He was yeah. just he was just a guy in his mid 40s. Right. Captain America could have just been a guy in his 40s. And they often treat him as if he is when he ends right. up leading the Avengers. You know, Hawkeye is constantly calling him Methuselah and saying like, gee, you know, it's, I, I don't need some cranky old timer like you. And it's like, what do you mean cranky old timer? Like, you know, chronologically, you're probably older than Captain America. You yes. at least had a whole life <laughs> bumming around as a carny. Like Captain America probably got, you know, drafted at age 18. And now he's still basically like a 20 something in his mind and in his body. He's not the cranky old veteran they treat him as in the Avengers going forward. So, but of course, it turned out to be very smart to come up with a way to freeze him as the timeline got stretched out further and further and further, and they could have him wake up later and later and later. And they, as I said before on this podcast, they talked about just having him be a new character in the Ultimate Universe, and they're like, and Mark Millar is like, no, I want to keep the out-of-time element. Mark Millar in the Ultimate Comics has a much better version of the waking up scene. They then do an even better job with it in the Captain America movie. This waking up scene is just bizarre. This whole comic is just bizarre. It is not very... The writing is not very good in this comic, and neither is the art. It's right away on page seven, everything that is iconic about this issue is over with on page seven. And suddenly a broccoli guy turns the Avengers to stone, which nobody remembers <laughs> being part of this issue because it is completely bizarre. It has nothing to do with, you know, all of this iconic stuff we've just gotten about Captain America and Zemo and, uh, and Bucky and all of that stuff. And it is just sends this issue off in a bizarre direction. And 
it is a tremendously iconic first seven pages and a tremendously forgettable 20 pages after that. <laughs> and they have largely been forgotten. <laughs> so, yes. Very well described. Okay, so that is March 1964, a tremendously huge month. We've got Captain America back. We've got Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. We've got a lot of huge things going on. And most importantly, we have Porcupine back, which is, <laughs> I, that is the most iconic, huge moment in all of Marvel history. And, you know, and really all of Giant Man's fan club, you know, not just the Porcupine, Giant Man's entire fan club. Oh yeah. They're a, uh, a group for the ages. <laughs> okay, guys, we will see you soon. Okay. Thank you very much, America and, and the rest of the world. That's right. I, now I'm the one who's turning into a jingoist here. Uh, thank you very much, everybody out there in podcast land. And uh, yeah, stay safe out there. I know that, you know, COVID's on the rise again here. Our mom just got it this past weekend and uh, she's getting better at this point, but stay safe out there, everybody. Yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.